Welcome to the East Asia Hotspots podcast, where we invite you to join us for chats with experts and scholars from around the world to talk about contemporary issues in East Asia. I'm the lead facilitator, Richard Haddock, with the George Washington University. Support of this podcast comes from the U.S. Department of Education's Title VI grant for East Asian Studies at the George Washington University's Elliott School of International Affairs. Our partners at the Elliott School that help make this podcast happen are the Seeger Center for Asian Studies and the GW Institute for Korean Studies. The views and opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of the speakers alone and do not reflect the position of the NRC. Through these podcasts, we want to encourage dialogue about diverse perspectives in East Asian studies. Check out our website at nrc.elliot.gwu.edu for all our podcast episodes and info about East Asian studies at the George Washington University. Now, let's start the conversation. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. This is Richard Haddock again. Thank you for joining us on the East Asia Hotspots podcast, and I'm here with a very special guest, Professor Robert Ash. Professor Ash is a professorial fellow in the China Institute at the University of London's School of Oriental and African Studies, where he teaches in the School of Financial and Management Studies as Professor of Economics with reference to China and Taiwan. From 1986 to 1995, he was head of the Contemporary China Institute, and from 1997 to 2001, he was director of the EU-China Academic Network. From 1999 to 2013, he was also director of the SOAS Taiwan Studies Program. Professor Ash has held visiting, research, and teaching positions at universities in Australia, Hong Kong, France, and Italy. He has been researching China for more than 40 years and has published on development issues relating to China, as well as on Taiwan and Hong Kong. His most recent major publication in 2017 is a study of China's agricultural development between 1840 and the present day. Agricultural Development in the World Periphery, a Global Economic History Approach. He has also undertaken a wide range of consultancy work in both private and public sectors, including for the British government, the European Commission, European Parliament, and the UN International Labour Organization. Quite a career, if you ask me. So, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Professor Robert Ash. Thanks very much, Richard, for that introduction. It's a great pleasure to be here. Great. So let's jump into the conversation. To what extent is understanding China's development of its rural sector critical to understanding China's overall economic and political developments post-1949? And, well, what have been the major evolutions of rural sector policies before the Xi Jinping era? In 1949, China's economy was, to a very large extent, an agricultural economy. Farming really dominated the economy, of course. It no longer does, has not for many years now. But in those days, it was hugely important. I think that understanding rural development, but particularly agricultural development, during the Mao era, the Mao Zedong era between 1949 and the end of the 1970s is critical to understanding what was going on. The narrative of uh, agricultural development during those 30 years was pretty clear. It was an attempt to promote the sustained growth of agriculture, but above all of food and even more specifically of, of grain, of rice and wheat, 
and corn and many other basic things in order to feed China's population. Because I would say in some ways throughout that period, although of course the Chinese economy was uh, evolving and changing very dramatically and at the end of the Mao period in terms of its contribution to China's economy, to its GDP, agriculture was much less important than it had been way back in the in the early 1950s. Nevertheless, a core, really central question and challenge was inevitably how to feed the population. So that was a basic issue. As the experience of many countries, of course, tells us there are many ways in which countries have gone about dealing with that challenge of feeding their populations. In China, I'm simplifying somewhat, but in China, the basic thrust of economic policy towards farming was, was very simple. It was to collectivize agriculture, to change the institutional framework in which farming was organized, and that meant collectivization. China, in many respects, in fact, followed the path that had been followed in the Soviet Union, above all in the uh, Stalinist era. And I would say that that defines China's agricultural development during that period. The question then is how successful was it? It was certainly successful in meeting what was the primary goal of Chairman Mao, of Mao Zedong and of the party, Chinese Communist Party, and of the government. And that main goal was to get hold of grain to tap the grain that was being produced by the farmers and to get it into the cities to feed the industrial workers and their families. And from that perspective, although there is, of course, an economic logic to collectivization, I would say that for Mao and his colleagues, the great attraction of collectivization was the control over farming in general. And that was the basis of the uh, narrative of agricultural development during, during those 30 years. There were many ups and downs. There were good times, there were bad times. There was a terrible time at the end of the 1950s when uh, Mao particularly launched the, the Great Leap Forward and that led to a devastating famine which killed a vast number of people. We don't know how many, but the consensus view these days seems to be that up to 40 or 45 million people died as a result of that. And these people were not the people living in the cities, they were not the industrial workers, they were not the urban inhabitants, they were the farmers and their families. When we get Mao died in 1976, the Mao era effectively came to an end a couple of years later in 1978 when Deng Xiaoping took over and when that happened, things began to change very profoundly and quite quickly in as much as, and this is, I think, one of the things that makes China such an interesting case study, China having emphasized collectivization between the 1950s and put in place this collectivist system, which lasted right through the Mao era. In the early 1980s, within a, an extraordinarily short period of time, it was simply dismantled and it disappeared. So China is a case study in what happens if you collectivize. Well, 
what happens if you collectivize in a certain way, mm -hmm. but also what happens if you choose to decollectivize, which was eventually the choice that was made by Deng Xiaoping. And I would say that the story, therefore, of agricultural, but it also now becomes, more broadly speaking, rural development, because the rural sector started to diversify in a very significant way from the 1980s. By diversification, I mean particularly the growth of industry in the countryside, small-scale industry taking off in the countryside. So we're now talking about not just agricultural development, but agricultural and rural development. And the story of China since the 1980s has been the story of trying to put in place a much more market-orientated system. That is a very complex story. I don't think we have time to talk about it in a, in a great deal. And it took a very long time. It's pretty much completed now. But although it began in 1983, 1984, it really wasn't completed until 2003. Wow. But now it is completed and China is, to all intents and purposes, it's a much, much more market-orientated system than it has ever been since, since 1949. And the contribution of the rural sector to economic development is underestimated and often ignored. And I think what's also interesting is that many times, actually, since 1949, it was ignored by the government as well with high costs. I mean, the highest cost was, of course, the mismanagement that led to that famine that I mentioned earlier. But there have been, not similar, but there have been other instances in quite recent years where the, the government, this is certainly no longer the case today, but the government has taken its eye off agriculture, agriculture particularly, and the costs of that have been quite, quite significant. So actually leading to present day a nice segue, is today the rural sector lies at the heart of President Xi Jinping's economic agenda for China's comprehensive development. Why has such a focus been placed on the rural sector, and why now? I think in a way my answer would be that, I mean, you're right, but Xi Jinping has been emphasizing the rural sector a great deal. But it isn't you. So in a way it isn't now. Suddenly it's, it's suddenly happening now. It's been happening... I would say for some time, I would say there's a real continuity of policies. But I think Xi Jinping has made the rural sector kind of his thing, or one of, one of his things, and he has emphasized it. And your question is a very good one. I mean, why the focus being placed on the rural sector? I think it has a lot to do with, and again, this isn't new, but nevertheless, it has a lot to do with the emphasis which uh, Xi Jinping has placed upon trying to create a more inclusive society. China's society and economy since the 1980s has become increasingly bifurcated, divided, and the gap, the economic gap, but the gap in other terms between the urban and the rural sector, since the middle of the 1980s, not interestingly, in the wake of the first reforms, which started in 1979, which very much favoured the rural sector, but that lasted for quite a short period of time. And we get to about 1984, 1985, and from that time until quite recently, the gap widened. 
I'm talking about the gap, for example, in terms of per capita incomes, widened the gap in terms of consumption widening, and China therefore departing from inclusiveness. Xi Jinping has placed a premium on trying to mitigate and to reverse these divisions. I think that came out very clearly a couple of years ago at the last party congress. He has made it a, a prime focus, a prime goal to uh, try to eliminate poverty. And poverty is essentially a rural phenomenon. I'm not saying there is no poverty in China's urban sector. Of course there is. But if you're thinking in terms of abject poverty, it's in the countryside that you find that. And it comes still as a surprise to me when I look at, for example, United Nations FAO data published annually to discover that, according to the FAO, there are still in China today 120 million people who are undernourished, who are hungry. That's not the received picture of China today, but it is a problem. Xi Jinping wants to do something about this. How are you going to deal with that? You need to put in place the right agricultural policies. You need to emphasize the importance of agriculture and more broadly of the rural sector. And in that way to eliminate poverty and by that same token, hopefully to narrow the gaps that have widened up between the urban and the rural sector. Wow, 120 million. That's slightly more than a third of the uh, population of the United States. It's quite, uh, quite a significant figure there. Which actually goes pretty well into the next question, and you've already broached this subject, but maybe we can go a little bit deeper, is uh, in your view, what kinds of divisions exist between rural and urban sectors in contemporary Chinese society, whether they be cultural, economic, political? You also mentioned access to uh, food security and nourishment. And what are their respective uh, historical drivers? Do you see the Chinese government attempting to address these divisions? And if so, how? Well, to take your second question, first, certainly the Chinese government and above all Xi himself are certainly trying to address these divisions. But what divisions are they? They are economic. I suppose one can say that they're political. And I guess one can say that they're also cultural. My attention is more on the economic divisions than on the, on the others. As I've uh, tried to indicate, economic divisions means the income divisions, levels of income between people living in the urban sector and the rural sector. Today, off the top of my head, the average urban income is about two and a half times bigger than the average rural income. At its worst, it was more than three to one, maybe five to ten years ago when it peaked. It since has started to reduce and the hope, certainly Xi Jinping's hope, is that it is going to continue to narrow. That means that there are also, and this is hugely important, I mean, I see no point in growth unless the people who are generating the growth benefit. People who should benefit from growth often don't benefit from growth. If we go back to the story of China in the Mao era, there were those peasants working extraordinarily hard, living very miserable lives, they were not getting the benefits from the increased food which they were producing on the whole. The food was being taken away from them through the procurement system. They had no say over it. It was 
being reallocated to those living in the cities who were seen as the priority people, as it were, by the um, government. If incomes lag, the likelihood is that that's going to mean that there are also gaps opening up in terms of consumption, in terms of material living standards. And that has been very apparent. There's been a extraordinary consumer revolution taking place in China for the last 30 years, I guess. But that is a consumer revolution which for much of that period benefited those living in the cities. Living in the countryside, by contrast, have benefited. But there's been a considerable lag. Those in the countryside are only beginning to catch up with those living in the cities. So there are those very clear economic divisions in terms of income and consumption. But there are also other divisions, access to education, access to uh, social welfare insurance, particularly health insurance. There is, I think, a pretty desperate problem facing those in the countryside. I sometimes say that there's a real health crisis facing China's countryside, for example. Political terms, I don't know if political is, is the word I should be using here, but I'd make one point, which is one might argue that an important part of the story of China's development since the end of the 1970s was that initially the problem for the government was how far can you push urban social tolerance? And that, of course, eventually became a terrific problem in 1989 with the Tiananmen, whatever you want to call it, incident, massacre. You choose your word. You <laughs> pays your money and you makes your choice, as it were. But that was essentially an urban problem. And of course, it had much to do with demands for freedom and, and democracy. That was a very important part. But there was also a very important economic element, people going out on the streets and complaining that their living standards, those in the cities, were being eroded. And the government dealt with that as it dealt with it. By contrast, one might say that since that time, it's been problems of rural social tolerance that have become a more significant uh, problem. What do I mean? I mean farmers losing their land, the land which they farm simply being taken away from them and not sometimes getting compensated. If they get compensated for it, very frequently not getting much compensation, sometimes not getting any compensation at all. Problems relating to the environment. There are some major problems, environmental problems facing the rural sector. Problems certainly, as I mentioned earlier, in terms of access to social welfare insurance. All these things creating a lot of frustration, which sometimes, not infrequently, turns into social protest, which sometimes becomes violent. It's rather interesting, I think, aspect of the emphasis on urban social tolerance and the government dealing with that, and then finding that actually the greater problem that it's been facing in more recent years has been the problem of rural social tolerance. And there's no doubt, to go back to an earlier question, there can be no doubt that that's also something which is, of course, probably uppermost in the heads, in the, in the minds of uh, Xi Jinping and his colleagues in the party. That uh, reminds me, I, I can't remember the specific adage, uh, Chinese adage about making sure that your boat stays afloat or it can be capsized or overturned by the sea on which it, it rests. So that kind of reminds me of that dynamic of trying to balance these 
two different spheres in China's society. So uh, how would you evaluate or score China's progress towards poverty reduction, achieving inclusive society, and fostering environmental stability? And do you see that there are other countries in the region or globally that can serve as models or maybe points of comparison? When I'm meeting my students, I often, giving lectures to, to my students, I do often say that the greatest achievement in China since uh, in the reform period, in the post-Mao period, has been the progress that has been made towards poverty reduction, which is just extraordinary. I mean, it's unprecedented in China's history, I think. And in the context of world development in recent decades, I should think quite likely is unprecedented uh, globally as well. One needs to bear in mind that at the end of the Mao period, one third, I think this is recognized officially within, within China, one third of China's population were living in poverty. And that's poverty defined in Chinese terms, which in our terms would be abject, abject poverty. That meant, of course, China's population 30, 40, 40 years ago was a good deal smaller than it is now. But that still meant that several hundred millions, 100 million people were living in terrible poverty. Now, you look today at poverty figures, which are regularly published. And by the way, China's poverty criterion has been raised in recent years. It's now about one point something dollars a day, not 1.5, but getting on for probably 1.25, 1.3 dollars per day. That's the Chinese poverty criterion. The official figures suggest that today between seven and eight million people, it's a big number, but it's not hundreds of millions of people as it was, are living in, in poverty. And Xi Jinping's goal, which I think will be fulfilled, is that by the end of this year, there will be none. Poverty will have been eliminated. But I emphasize that is poverty as defined by China's poverty criterion. It doesn't mean, oh, well, there the end of this year, there'll be no people who regard themselves or whom we would regard as being poor in China. But it is a story of, I think, phenomenal, phenomenal progress, actually. Having said that, you deal with one problem, one poverty problem, and another poverty problem emerges. Mm. And the poverty problem that emerges is one that we've already talked about, and that is that relative poverty becomes a problem. People look at how they're doing and they start to compare themselves with how other people are doing. Those in the countryside who have, of course, they, they all have access these days to a colored TV. They can see pictures of the streets of Beijing and they can get some idea of what life is like in Beijing. They probably have children who've migrated and come back and tell them about life in Beijing. Their stories may not always be good stories, favorable <laughs> stories, but very often, of course, they are. And they see that the pavements of Beijing are paved with gold compared with <laughs> what they have in their village. So relative poverty, and this is taking us back, of course, to these urban-rural gaps, these differentials that have opened up, they see themselves as the poor relations, I think, in economic terms, but in other terms as well. So 
it is in many respects a story of phenomenal success, but we need to be very careful in saying, well, that means China's just dealt with the poverty problem. There is, there's, no, there's no problem to worry about anymore. That is not true. Very interesting input that you have about the successes, but also some of the uh, more sobering elements that might come with these successes, too. Knowing that you've done considerable research and teaching about Taiwan's agricultural development, are there lessons or analogies in Taiwan's uh, agricultural development that serve as useful points of comparison that could perhaps highlight similarities or differences of rural sector development across different regime and government types? I think that's a really interesting question. <laughs> Let me start by saying this. It's very interesting to say between different regime and government types. First thing I'd say when you look at Taiwan is that Taiwan itself is an extraordinarily interesting story of a government, the Guomindang government, which, however, was not a monolithic government. I mean, it changed and its policies changed, and not least its policies towards agriculture changed fundamentally. If one compares the Guomindang regime when it was the government of mainland China in the late 1920s and the 1930s, for example, particularly, and then look at that same, not same, but the, the Guomindang mm -hmm. regime after it had lost the civil war and it had moved to, moved to Taiwan. So the first point I would make is that I would give very low marks to the Guomindang regime in terms of its what it did about enormous, profound agricultural challenges, profound problems of absence of agricultural growth, profound problems of agricultural poverty as they existed in China in the 1920s and the 1930s. I'd give very low marks, not to the policies that were formulated, they were very rational. They were very good on paper, but to the implementation of their, mm -hmm. those policies, because they, as you know, they really were not implemented. There was a, there was a land reform law, but that land reform never, never took place. By contrast, you then move forward into the 1950s, and here is this Kuomintang regime having to deal with a different, very much tinier entity in Taiwan, but a Taiwanese economy which in the 1950s was still dominated by agriculture. What is it going to do about it? Answer, to an extent, it finally implemented those policies that it, it had formulated for the mainland mm -hmm. 20 years or more, 20 years before. When one compares China and Taiwan post-1949, I would say for sure there are lessons but I would say that they're kind of lessons viewed in hindsight in the sense that it seems to me if only China had, I'm not saying copied, but if only China had looked at how the KM, the Kuomintang regime was addressing agricultural problems in Taiwan, problems of poverty, the challenge of promoting faster agricultural growth in Taiwan, if only China had looked at, at, at that experience and how the Taiwanese government implemented a real package of policies which involved institutional change, but also involved economic initiatives, also involved technological initiatives. There was, but it's, it's kind of too late to say this now because time has moved on, but there were real lessons to be learned hmm. for China at that time. But China chose not to do that. I mean, for China, 
controlling the farmers, controlling the harvest was all important. And its answer was that if only we can organize the farmers in a particular way, i.e. collectivize them, then that'll do for us. That'll do the trick. So historically, there was a lesson to be learned. But what does China have to learn today? I think in some ways, it has learned the lesson, but it's learned the lesson not because it's looked particularly at what's been happening in Taiwan, but because it's it's looked at what's been happening itself in its mm. within its own its own economy, and particularly Deng Xiaoping learned some lessons from that. Right. So, looking ahead, what do you see are the current and future trends of China's rural economic sector, such as the role of perhaps e-commerce or other such trends? What do you see as major challenges for China's rural sector development? And how would those trends be a factor in considering China's overall economic development, including the impact that this might have on East Asia's economic development as a whole? You mentioned the role of e-commerce, and it interests me very greatly. This is something that I've only very recently actually started to look at. As the Chinese rural economy has diversified, that's been happening now for quite a number of decades, 30 years or or more, it's now reached the stage at which it's beginning to embrace rural digitalization and the development, as you mentioned, of e-commerce. This is a development which is already having a very significant impact in the rural sector. And I think it's very clear that it's a development which the government is very anxious to emphasize because it sees it as one of the means that is going to help it deal with this further poverty alleviation in the countryside and making the farmers better off and thereby making it possible to achieve a more integrated economy, integrating the rural economy more closely into the into the urban economy, hopefully creating a more inclusive society. So I think the role of e-commerce, which has been developing very fast, so far as we can see, it's going to continue to develop. This is certainly a major trend to be something we should really be looking at. The $64,000 question is, is it going to work? I hope it'll work, but I can't help feeling a little bit skeptical. I've been looking at, of course, not e-commerce because that's something new, but I've been looking at rural developments and aware of the formulation of what seemed to me to be very rational policies for over a very long period, and then observing that actually these policies haven't worked. Why haven't they worked? Because they haven't been implemented. The key is ensuring that, for example, e-commerce really develops throughout the rural sector. And if you look at the situation now, you see that the focus of the fastest development of e-commerce is in a very small number of provinces, probably six. I think there are six provinces who are responsible for 95% of all the e-commerce development that has been taking place. This is a familiar, familiar scene, as you will know, in the case of China. So major challenges, how this can be extended to the rest of the economy, to the rest of the, of the country. I see that as a major challenge. We mustn't forget that agriculture is still there. Agriculture, as the Chinese like to tell us, as Xi Jinping likes to tell us, is still the foundation of the economy. It's kind of extraordinary that this 1960s slogan is a slogan that we still hear quite a lot. So agriculture is still very important and food security for sure. 
is uh, also seen as a real core issue. Chinese government is determined that it should maintain a high degree of self-sufficiency, domestic self-sufficiency, in the provision of food. That is therefore a challenge. How is China's agriculture, and we are still extraordinary, we're still talking particularly, of course not, not only, but we are talking particularly about producers of grain, of rice and wheat and corn these days, and soybeans. Soybeans are defined as a grain in China. So how is agricultural growth going to be maintained and sustained in the future? This is a major challenge. The answer is, the answer in, in a way is simple enough, modernization. The application of best practice techniques, the applications of scientific advances to, to agriculture holds the key, but you've still got to do it. <laughs> and doing it isn't always easy, and least of all is it easy in a, in a country like China, in a country that is enormous as China. This podcast tries to hit on also uh, contemporary issues, at least at the time of the podcast. One of these issues is the recent development regarding the outbreak of what was formerly known as the novel coronavirus and now uh, identified as COVID-19. What is the impact that you see of this outbreak on China's economy? In what ways do you see this outbreak affecting discourse in China and the region about food security, public health policy, and perhaps uh, economic integration within these subjects? I think what I think at the moment actually is that although trends are of course beginning to emerge, nevertheless, it's for me anyway, it's too early to say because I just don't know how this outbreak is going to develop. On the one hand, we are now reading reports of the problem in China having peaked Things are going to get better. People are going back to work. Transport's starting to, to function again. But I wonder if that re really is the case. I mean, I, 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 simply, I simply don't know. At this stage, I'm kind of waiting to see how, how things will develop. The impact on the economy is already very significant. And a lot is being talked about. And I can't say very much more than the blindingly obvious, which is the economy, which was already slowing, is going to slow even more. It has slowed even more. The question is, when does it peak up again? And I'm afraid I'm not someone who could give an answer to that. But again, depending how the COVID-19 scare evolves, but some people are saying, well, by the end of the year, the economy will be picking up strongly and we'll eventually be looking back and seeing this as a rather big blip. But I still feel it's, it's, it's rather primitive to see that. The supply chains clearly have been very, very badly disrupted for obvious reasons. Given my interest in the rural sector, I have tended to be asking myself, how might this affect agriculture? And it's very interesting, as we sit here now, to have observed that only a few days ago, Xi Jinping has been placing a lot of emphasis upon the need to get the spring planting. You know, we're coming mm -hmm. up to this crucial time of year when the farmers need to be in the fields and planting the seed for the summer harvest. And I'm conscious of the fact that Back in the earlier part of the century, the, the, after the outbreak of SARS, there was a major reduction in the sown area of grain. I think it fell to its lowest level for 40 years. It seems to me not impossible that we shall see similar things happening. Mm -hmm. But again, we really have to uh, wait and see. As about uh, discourse, 
Well, I, of course, yes, of course, it will affect discourse. And there is a major discourse in, in China about the things you mentioned about food security, particularly these days about food safety, how safe mm -hmm. is the food, and about public health about these things. And this can only intensify in the wake of what has, what has happened. What lessons we might learn from China that, well, that I don't know, has been a lot of praise, for example, from the World Health Organization for the way in which the Chinese government put in place these quarantine arrangements which seem in some ways quite brutal, but they appear to have worked. Of course, they can only work in the way in which they have done in China because of the nature of the, the regime and the control mechanisms that are available to the government. I certainly am not holding my breath in the light of some criticisms that have been laid at the door of the Chinese government for lack of transparency and what do these figures really mean and so forth and so on. I don't hold my breath that we're going to see greater transparency. I see no, no reason to suppose that that will be the case in the future. So for those of us interested in learning more, and such as myself included, about China's rural security, rural sector, and comparative rural economic development, what resources, studies, or maybe even news outlets do you suggest audiences to look into? And what were the tools and resources that you used along your personal and academic journey down this path? I think I said at one point that the rural sector and agriculture has been kind of the poor relation. There are many, many more people throughout the world who are and many people, huge numbers of people looking at the Chinese economy and studying and analyzing the Chinese economy. I'm not just, certainly not just thinking of academic study, but think tanks and uh, the corporate sector and of course media. And there's some wonderful analysis that all the time is being conducted on the Chinese economy. But when I say that, much less so the agricultural economy. People don't really work very much on the agricultural economy, sadly so, I think, or indeed more broadly on the rural sector. And I say this, and I'm sorry to say this, one consequence of this is that I think it's actually more difficult to keep up with what's happening in the rural sector because there's just not so much material available in English. And I think there's no shortcut in the sense that if you really kind of study what's going on in the countryside, you need to be able to come to grips with, with Chinese language sources. And that may be, a, for some of our people listening who, who might be interested in this, rather a depressing thing to have to have to hear, but I'd say, well, if you're really interested in this, at some point or other, you're probably going to have to go and learn Chinese. Having said that, there are good websites. Not least, there's a good, for example, ministry, it's now called the Ministry, it's no longer the Ministry of Agriculture in China, it's the Ministry of Agriculture and Rural Affairs. They have a very good website with very useful material, and I'd encourage people to go and explore a website like that. There are books to read, but there are not nearly so many, many books to read that are focusing on agriculture and the rural sector as there are on other parts of the economy. It's in some ways a greater challenge trying to come to grips with what's going on in the countryside compared with what's going on elsewhere in the economy. Well, I think that also highlights the importance of language study. And here at the NRC, we do uh, support also a few uh, language scholarships. So hopefully uh, scholars now incoming and perhaps in the future will interested in this can use this as a source of inspiration to uh, engage in advanced language study. I hope so. <laughs> I, I hope so. And I hope you can get a few more scholarships, a few more, bit more funding for scholarships. 
Definitely. Well, uh, thank you, listeners, for joining in. And thank you, Professor Robert Ash, for a fantastic discussion, really, about the rural sector, rural economy, and agricultural development, all subjects that are very refreshing for me to be able to study and hear your experiences about. So thank you for coming in today. Thank you so much, Richard. Been a pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for listening in to our podcast episode. For more information about this episode and all our other episodes, be sure to check out our website at nrc.elliot.gwu.edu and subscribe to our email list to get the latest on upcoming episodes. If you have a recommendation on a topic or expert to interview for a future podcast episode, please send us your ideas via email to gweanrc at gwu.edu. Lastly, we'd like to thank our sponsors for all their support in making this podcast happen. But most importantly, we want to thank you, the listener, for tuning in. Until next time.